From KCRW Santa Monica and KCRW.com, it's The Treatment. It's The Treatment. I'm Elvis Mitchell. I'm thrilled to welcome my Golden Globe winner, a Tony nominee. She's a Golden Globe winner, of course, for her work in... Alexander Payne's Holdovers. My guest is Devine Joy Randolph. I've seen her on Broadway. It was interesting seeing what you're going to do with Oda May and Ghost. And you just sort of came in and took the stage in this completely unselfconscious way. And so when you got inhabited, it's like it was like wow, because you know you've done this. You you play, you play characters that we've seen before. You did Lady Reed and Dolomite is my name, and then doing Oda May and Ghost. I wonder what it's like for you taking on these characters that people think that they know. I'm very physical. Someone like Martin Lawrence and what he contributed in the canon of The Martin Show, that kind of full body, full involvement of the space is something that I really connect with. Or another person in comedy that I can think of, of like a a Jack Black, which is what it was something that was really fun for me, in particular for High Fidelity. In regards to expectations, I will say this. I have a certain standard, a mode of proficiency uh, and work ethic in which I derive from at all times. And that's me trying to bring the best quality, no matter what the role is, even what the character, where they are in life. You know what I mean? Like I've had the opportunity to quite literally play an inmate in Empire and yet instill those attributes still come into effect, right? Uh, But in regards to managing people's expectations, first of all, to be doing this for a living is a great privilege. It's kind of lightning in a bottle and finding a needle in the haystack. The odds are really stacked against you. To then be a consistent working actor is another major feat, right? Then to be at this level in which people are receiving and accepting my work puts me in this um, very rare arena that I do not take for granted and I am extremely grateful for and continue to work very hard to, uh, for my own personal challenge and betterment, less of the industry. But I have a high work ethic and a high requirement of quality. It's always quality over quantity for me. Even if I'm choosing the roles, I really am specific on what is the story that I'm telling What is the message that's coming across through my character and how ultimately can I help heal and change others, right? Because that's a big thing for me. Also then another layer of it is being that I am a woman of color. It is important to me that being that the moment I step on that stage or the screen or your TV show, I am representing several things. So it is important to me that it's done so in a way that it's being received well. Do you know what I'm saying? It's important that it is accurate. It is authentic. People can relate to it, that it's honest and it's highly detailed. So it's less about people's expectations, but I find that when I search and hunt for the truth and authentic approach, I end up getting people's, for lack of a better word, approval because they're connecting to something real. Being that I do this level of detailed work, people, no matter what color skin they are, creed, race, gender, 
They can connect to these characters because real is recognizing real. And I believe as storytellers, part of the beauty and power of our job is to bring people together, evoke healing, evoke a sense of uh, betterment of self, be able to look inside oneself. I always say this, I don't need something to be a hit. If one person walks away from seeing something that I'm a part of, and that gets them thinking or gets them having conversations with others or gets them questioning themselves or making them want to change and improve things in their life, I've done my job. I'm sorry to break it to you, Davine, but you're in a hit. It's the treatment. I'm talking to the first person in the history of the show, whoever did name check Shanae and that's Davine Joy Randolph. She's an Oscar nominee for her work in The Holdovers. You can also the show at kcrw.com slash the treatment. Because you've been in pieces between, going back to my, Dolomite is my name, or Ghost, where those costumes said as much as you did. And to take ownership of a, of a kind of person who could wear those clothes and say, this is me, and, and not be an actor trying to convey character, but actually, and you just were getting at it when you were talking. It's about honesty and finding the honesty in these characters. And having seen you, certainly, and because you work with Lee Daniels twice between Empire and the United States versus Billie Holiday, there is honesty you find through character that I've always come to associate with you. In regards to Dolomite, a lot of that was the beginnings of the makings of the, this beautiful, what has now become, I call us lifers, but this beautiful relationship that builded in particular with Ruth Carter and I. Um, I've always had a love of fashion and clothes and how clothes can be a storyteller and another piece in the puzzle that if used right, can evoke emotion and further better the storytelling. And then to meet this woman and then see, oh, you vibe in the same way and you've actually been doing this all along in your area of work. When two like-minded people came together, it was kismet. And so things that before, to be honest with you, I thought like, oh, well, maybe I'm being too much. And you know what I mean? To this level of work that I put in in my prep to get these characters so detailed, I met a kindred spirit who does the same thing. And so she further affirmed for me and instilled new techniques and tools and values um, that I carry with me today. And, and so I've never let it go. In fact, I've leaned into it more. And so in particular with holdovers, it was all about the textiles. So everything that I was wearing was vintage, whether it was vintage clothes that was bought that fit me or if it was us buying vintage fabric that we were then customizing and making custom clothes. And so with that, in a way that any, in any other project that I've done, it was about then the texture and the feel. I wanted people to look at and view what she's wearing and feel something. So that's why the, you know, the night gowns or night dresses, overcoats that she had on when they're watching the newlywed game, that purple one in particular, it's ribbed, it's fuzzy, it's 3D, right? I wanted it to be something that people could imagine their aunt or mother or grandmother, some maternal figure that they hold warm and dear to their heart. I wanted her to be 
all of her textiles to be something that she wanted to touch or hug her. Maybe it's subliminal messaging, but I wanted there to be a real tenderness and a connection and a femininity towards her. I wanted this idea that she does not have much, but of the things, she has a very well curated closet and that everything has a purpose and it's very intentional what she's wearing. I was thinking about that scene too, where you're in the closet and you're like running your hand, you're touching every single thing in that closet. We see that. So there's this tactile relationship that she has with everything that she owns, that she knows how it feels, that she knows what it means to her. Because so many of these characters you play, we we see they have two different sides. Uh, Lady Reed is different in front of the camera than she is off camera. When you in the whole of us, when she's at that party, she's a different person because she's wearing that dress. That's her party dress. But she's also saying, this dress is precious to me and I'm going to take care of it. And you're going to respect me in it. You know, she, there's no wasted movement in that dress, which I was kind of fascinated by. And in Ghost, when she's inhabited, she's doing something different with her hands. Her posture is different. Yeah, that's fun for me. That's fun for me because it's, it's stuff like that that allows me to meld and dissolve into the role and the transformation to say sustain throughout the performance. I always want to create, especially when there's attributes about this character that I do find myself in, I'm always searching for the differences that will ground me so that I don't slip into going back to me. And I love that you reference Ghost because something that Ghost gave me, which is both literal and metaphorical, was the idea of transformation and a soul overcoming your body and possessing you to create and tell story. And it's something that in many senses, it was like, oh, is it this like, you know, commercial project off of a movie and blah, blah, blah. But what that gift gave me was the ability to allow someone else's story in life to possess my body. And it is my job as an actor and my charge to convey to the people what this person wants to say. And that's what I try to do in all aspects. It is a very spiritual uh, experience for me. I do think of these women as spirits or souls, whether they're real people or not. And so when I'm thinking of picking these roles, I'm thinking, is this story written well enough that this is a story I want to tell and spend the time to allow the transformation to occur to let this woman's story be told. Well, we're going to take a bit of a break. My guest, who is always possessed, whether figuratively on stage or by the role, is Devon Joy Randolph. We know her most recently for her Golden Globe winning and Academy Award nominated work in Alexander Payne's film, The Holdover. It's, it's the treatment. There's more to come. Stay with us.
She's still here. She's ready to go again. She's probably still possessed for all we know. It's Dayfine Joy Randolph. She's <laughs> one of the stars of the film, The Holdovers. You can also hear the show at kcrw.com slash the treatment. In Ghost, you don't play it for comedy. The transformational moments, I mean, you could have gone broad with it because the way you play her from the outset, we don't know whether she trusts herself or not. And it's through this transformation that she comes to know herself. And and that's something you clearly brought to it. Again, there's this shift in so many of these things that you've done. We just talked about these three roles, again, uh, between the holdovers and Ghost and My Name is Dolomite. We see these women shift from one being to another somehow. I mean, when she's had a few drinks and, and is really not letting her guard keep her propped up anymore— we can see who she is, but she's still holding something back. So there's still this sort of pride of, I have to present this this demeanor because these are people who know me professionally. So there may be some chinks in the armor, there may be some cracks in the window, but they're not going to see everything. And there's this part of you that even when these women make these shift, there's still a part that you're holding back on that creates this fascinating tension for me. When I was in formal training for this, it started at Temple University, but what it really, truly kicked in was at Yale School of Drama. And then I studied in London with the British Academy of Dramatic Arts in Oxford. I had an education primarily in the classics and the dramatics. Sense of humor, I credit my family with in giving me even with ghosts, I will tell you, I was exhausted. I, when it was when the show was done, every night, I had a ritual of like a coming down from that show. Even if we were to have done, I don't know, the TV version or readapt or, you know, do another movie version. What she's going through is so taxing. The stakes are extremely high. I'll give you a perfect example. There was one time where I was physically tired. It was a matinee. And I'm like, you know, it's fine. This is a morning show. <laughs> you know, these are older people in the audience. This is like, you know, busloads of people that came. Yeah, this is fine. I will never forget that I was, I said the hit line, you know, the infamous line. And people literally booed me because I said it probably at like a five. I, I didn't, you know, Molly, you're in danger, girl. Serious. People booed me. The stage manager said, Devon, what happened? I said, what do you mean? I gave another version of it. They said, no, 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 no. This, you have to give the full out performance. And I quickly understood, wow, this requires all of me. And I say that to say comedy comes through the height of the drama. There's nothing funny for the person doing it. It actually was a very taxing and a very sad project for me to do. I'm dealing with death. The girl's crying the whole time. She misses her boyfriend. And it was emotionally, it actually was a lot. In no way, you know, so in a way, I'm in a drama, like a Grecian drama. Everybody else is laughing and dancing and having a good old time. 
And I'm stressed out, you know what I mean, as the character dealing with all this. That's why I think that bank scene in particular is so fun because it's like a circus, quite literally, of I'm juggling all the plates and they're giving me more plates. And now they want me to be on a unicycle and juggle. And now they want me to juggle saw machine. You know what I mean? Like saws in the air and swallow a sword of fire. That's what that thing feels like. And in the intensity, and that's ultimately clown work, right? When we see clowns in the circus, seeing someone struggle, that's why children even laugh at it in cartoons. Seeing someone struggle to try to complete a task that they very much so care about, passionate about, convicted to do, is funny to people. But for the person, it is completely the opposite. And so, yes, she is a woman who, and speaking of Mary now, Mary has an armor. She has, she is a Black woman in an all-white school. She has a very good job that she does not want to lose, a job that afforded her child to get an education. That job matters a lot. We talked about that a lot in regards to, you know, because at first it was conversations of like, that I was going to predominantly be wearing like loungewear, we'll say, like nightgowns and 90s and, you know what I mean? Like their version of sweatpants in in the late 60s. And I was like, absolutely not. She's a professional. This is still her job. Yes, she's working over the holidays, but she's always going to be put together because that's who she is. And that's also culturally who those kind of women are. I knew doing holdovers, not only reading the script, that this character was going to be someone who was going to be the emotional life, the heart and soul of already a very emotionally touching project. Um, But I knew that she was going to be hugely responsible for a lot of this. Then on top of it, I knew I was going to be responsible for the feminine energy of this movie. Then I knew I was going to be responsible for dealing with ideas of grief. So with that, I wanted to make sure that from start to finish, I was going to cover the entire gambit of those stages of grief throughout the movie because I wanted to make sure that when people watch it and if they were going through something, no matter what stage they were currently in, at some point in the movie, they could relate to. So these are certain things that I make sure of so that people can feel seen and connected and that the work can matter. This is where I get to say, preach. We're talking about real recognizing real with my guest, Dave and Joy Randolph. She's an Academy Award nominee for her work in The Holdovers. It's The Treatment, which you can also hear at kcrw.com slash The Treatment. There's something you do when you listen. And all these three of these characters that we're talking about, like Lady Reed and, and, and Older Man and Mary, we judge them by the extent to which they have to listen because that's the way they're giving themselves. That's the way they're giving the most of themselves because they're not letting anybody but the audience see who they really are. And so talking about keeping the the way Mary sort of, even when she's drunk and down, she's still not letting go 100% because she recognizes that she's being presentational and Oda Maid being entirely presentational. She could, that, and in fact, those costumes are kind of her armor because she doesn't want people to see her. These women, especially, it comes, it rings true for me in that scene after the party where she's walking to the car with Paul and she says, 
You can't tell that boy who's been abandoned by somebody you won't abandon him to. What's wrong with you? And she doesn't shout it. She just sort of says it. I mean, that to me really shows that even when she was drunk, she was still listening to everything going on. And for me, you talk about being taxing. For me, all these roles have to be taxing because that those demands of paying attention the way that people don't expect these characters to pay attention. Yes, and that's from me living with women and, you know, seeing how, in particular, a woman is in that era. You're talking about late 60s, 70s. We're just starting to begin to, quote unquote, get our rights. We're just starting to be in the workforce. And if our man let us contribute to the finances, unless you were a single mother, which she was, she was in her case, and you must. So there's certain things to it of like just an experiences of the women in my life that I was like, ain't no way. You know what I mean? There's certain ways in which even the close women in my life, my aunts, my mother, my grandmother, even as being blood relatives, I would have to be like, how are you actually feeling today, mom? Grandma, what's really going on? How, how does your back really feel? You know what I mean? Because... They would sit there and not say anything and are quietly suffering and yet have the ability in the midst of their suffering to not only be there for other people, but to protect and nurture. And that is something that I really wanted to show the power of a woman, but also specifically the power and the beauty of a Black woman that she is able to, in spite of her situation and her trials and tribulations, almost to a detrimental and unhealthy level, I will say, have the ability to show up for everyone else. And I wanted to show how also in that beauty, she's flawed in that way. And listen, for that kitchen scene, we only did two takes of that. We did one take where it was a much bigger thing where she really releases and uh, it's a reverse piata. I'm on the floor. Uh, Angus <laughs> is holding me, you know, and, and that could have worked. In a way that could have worked because it was the magnitude of her pain. But what we realized was more impactful if you only like a, a, a holding a balloon blown up and you know how you pinch and pull the sides just a little bit seeps out, that we realize uh, this is actually more impactful. And how literally it cuts to almost abruptly the next shot of them walking out the house. Tears strewn down, the mascara is all down her face. And it's funny because that happened due to the first take that we did when I'm laid out on the floor. But the director was like, I love it. Keep that though. Let's not clean the face for the second take because that's actually, that's a beautiful and artistic view of what she actually feels inside. Let's keep it and have the juxtaposition of this moment that you're saying where she's like, you know, very directly kind of scolds Paul being like, what is wrong with you? You don't, you don't tell no kid that because you wouldn't want to be told that. And it it's also shows the beautiful dynamic of they're like this little odd couple, this unconventional marriage, this unconventional 
little family that's getting started and the power of the quote unquote mother dynamic, right? Where she can tell the father, the husband, hey, don't do that. He's got enough on his back. When did you realize that you had this ability not only to listen, but to show the toll of listening on the character? Because that's something that you do. And and I've seen you do it on stage. And I've seen you do it on small screen and big screen. When did that hit you? Was it when you were studying music, when you moved into studying theater? When did it occur to you that you had that ability? You know, to be really honest with you, you're the first person who's made me aware of this in the way that you're describing it now. I, I guess it's something I've just been doing. They've always say listening is the strongest tool that you have when acting. I got very lucky that I got introduced to acting by arguably at the top tier. So like a baby, my first information of acting was from arguably the best, right? Or some of the best. And what I learned quickly about myself in regards to process was because I'm an all-in type of person, not specifically that it's method, but because I'm an all-in type of person, I knew I need to do my prep work to get to know this person. I need to have, in dialects, they call it key phrases. Those are sentences that have the right vowels and any other kind of changes, dialectical changes that immediately put you in the, that dialect. Like, for example, an obvious one for Boston is and Harvard Yad, right? There's enough sounds with that that immediately is like, okay, great, I'm Boston. Similarly, I translate that to air or any and all forms of the acting. That's why the clothes mean so much. That's why the hair means so much. That's why, for example, I said, you know, these are my mother, my grandmother's glasses. Please find a replica version of this with a little dainty chain, just like she has in this picture. Because I knew that wearing her glasses was going to immediately keep me in the world. The only thing that I can think of is because of the full immersion that I dive into with this character, that there's a, a connective tissue of myself, or it's almost like, like ghosts, I'm the host of, but I'm not there, if that makes sense. And so then I think something, once the work is done and the prep is done, these things kind of come into play. And it's like a full immersive experience. And I always know when I'm doing it right, when I don't remember. It's almost like, I don't know how else to explain it, but actors have said this before. It's almost like you black out. And I know that sounds very intense, but when the, when the director says cut, I don't then necessarily remember what happens. And almost like coming to, you really know if you did well, that when they say cut, then the director or the scene partner, eyes are big or in there like, and they're like, what happened? What happened? And they're like, yo, that was great. And then I have to just trust them because I'm not, you know what I'm saying? Censoring myself. It's a lack of censoring. It's like I'm a raging bull within the, this fence. You know what I mean? So let's say they give me two acres of pasture that's fenced in to seemingly make me feel like I'm free, but I'm within these confined space. I like to just go off within those boundaries and have this kind of childlike abandonment. 
Well, my guest is Devon Joy Randolph. For other times, I will thank her for her time today and congratulate her for her Oscar nomination for The Holdovers and for all her terrific work. And I hope we can have her come back and do the show again. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for your time. I greatly appreciate you. She has been nominated for a Tony and for the film The Holdovers. Davine Joy Randolph has won a Golden Globe and been nominated for Best Supporting Actress Oscar. Award winners and nominees and others worthy of your time at the archive, kcrw.com slash the treatment. As for me, it's an honor just to be doing this show. I'm Elvis Mitchell. It's the award-winning The Treatment. More to come. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. It's the treatment. I'm Alphys Mitchell. I think there's nothing more audacious than to start a project by showing us the back of a movie star. And that's exactly what our guest and our old friend Lulu Wong does in her new project, Expats, an adaptation of The Expatriates by Janice Warren Gailey for Amazon's six-hour series. And she just lets us know that she's playing with expectation by starting off with the back of Nicole Kidman. Yes, uh, there were many discussions about that decision. But it, it it was kind of incredible, though, right? That you know it's Nicole Kidman, even from the back of her. There's so much in that book, and in this show as well, that people are kind of identified by what they eat. And those of us certainly who've seen The Farewell know that you can do that kind of thing. But also by the way they treat the people who who deal with food. And that's really a big part of this show, isn't it? Yeah, I think that I just... Um wanted to show all of these in-between moments, you know, in in between places in life that aren't normally dramatized. Like we don't talk a lot about, you know, who is carrying the brunt of the domestic labor, for example, like who is actually cooking the dinners, who is actually doing dishes, who's taking care of children. And caretaking is something we don't necessarily show a lot either. And so I wanted to just highlight the way this society functions. But also, too, what you've done, I guess it reminds me a bit, certainly, of Farrell and also Posthumous, is just about a woman sort of shaping a narrative and watching a story that's surprising her come to life before her eyes. You mean Margaret? I, well, I mean Margaret and Mercy, uh, but but that that's certainly the case in the other two films as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that I really relate to women being both um, the observer and also being observed, that they are, you know, oftentimes the subject and other times they have agency. And so it is about shifting that gaze, you know, sometimes we're looking at them and sometimes we're looking from them. 
But I think that that plays with the idea of what a protagonist is supposed to be, to have a protagonist who can go from being passive to active and observing to being pulled into something. It, it toys around with, I think, narrative expectation. And it's the kind of thing I guess I've come to expect from you. Yeah, I mean, I hope that's a good thing. <laughs> I don't know why I do that. I guess it's... Um... It's it's strange to have sort of your your instincts pointed out to you or sort of like connecting the dots of these different projects. Um, but yeah, I've always been uncomfortable with this idea that a protagonist has to have agency at all times because that's not how I experience life. Just thinking about your other work too, I mean, this book is sort of built around how Every act has a consequence, and every consequence has a repercussion. And one thing leads to the next, leads to the next. That idea of having reality and human nature sort of collide with, with what it is you want, what you expect from life. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I think about that so much, and then there's other times where I don't think it at all. You know, and I think, then I regret not thinking about that because it is a butterfly effect. And I think that in order to change the world, you change yourself. It's starting small. It's not always like grandiose when you set out to change systems or change the world. And yet we can often get caught up in our own pettiness or in a lack of awareness when we're tired, when we're dealing with a trauma or just just even just a bad day of any kind. And so I guess I was trying to balance both of those ideas, right? Like of an awareness of this butterfly effect of this ripple effect, but then also holding space for the need to give ourselves grace and give others grace when we're not all that aware. And and that's a question, like how much grace is someone allowed, <laughs> you know, like it's someone like Margaret, like how, how much do we excuse her behavior or we don't excuse her behavior? And I think everyone's going to differ. Even though it's six hours, there's a lot of condensation that takes place. And um, there's some, there's so much implication in the show that I was fascinated by. I don't want to get too much into the kind of stuff that Mercy hears from her mom that sort of sets a lot of her life into motion. But there's a line from the book that, uh, again, there's a, quite a few things that I thought, I thought you did a really great job of just sort of absorbing without stating. And there's one line, she's not a bad person, but things would never go her way. Yeah, that's that, um, you know, Asian superstition that I'm very familiar with. I was told from a young age that I was lucky. My mom went to go see a psychic when I was a baby. And the, the psychic said to her, this was actually a scene in The Farewell that ended up getting cut, but the psychic said to her that um, she said, you are a river and you will never collect anything. You know, all of your success will flow and will move, but your daughter is the ocean. And all of the achievements and all of your aspirations in life will flow into her and she is the great ocean. And my mom started telling me that since I was a kid. And so, so much, I'm like, am I actually who I am? Or is this a self-fulfilling prophecy? Or was the prophet right? I'm grateful to her that she said that instead of what Mercy's mom says to her. But 
there is a superstition and, and, and there's a lot of superstitions about the shape of your face and the cards that you're dealt and that is your fate and you'll never escape it. And so I have a friend whose mom told her that she went to go see a psychic and the psychic said that she's always going to be alone and she's going to die alone. Like, what do you do with that? <laughs> you know, she was, and she's been single for a long time. It's like, I think about those kinds of things. Like, is it better to know? Is it better not to know? Do we then perpetuate it? And so, yeah, that's kind of what um, drove me to tell the story about Mercy and why I was so compelled by her, because she is trying to escape that curse. Well, there's also this sort of idea of trying to, I don't want to say escape a curse, but just the idea of never really being able to get away from your history and your past. And I guess those things that shape your history. And that's been the case in so many of the things you've done. I mean, in Posthumous, he's trying to literally, your protagonist is trying to escape his life. That idea of trying to rise above or, or move away from what's expected of you is something that you've revisited. I guess so. I guess because maybe on some level, that's my own journey. You know, everyone says, oh, you can change your life. But what does that actually look like? How do you actually do that? How do you escape expectations? And when are sometimes expectations okay? And because rebelling is all is not always the answer either. And so, yeah, I think that um, many of my characters are full of generational trauma and uh, and also just, um, yeah, trying to escape their past. But it's funny also this idea of testing fate which I think we see very much here because how much of your life is in your control versus what people tell you you're supposed to be. That's, that's really kind of a, a big part of what expats is. I am nodding my head a lot because that's exactly <laughs> what it is. <laughs> that's, that is the question. How much of your life is really in your control? I the way my life has been set up was outside of my control. You know, I mean, when I used to get mad at my mom, I would say, well, I didn't ask to be born. <laughs> uh, <laughs> as I'm sure many people have said to their, to their parents when they're fighting. But I also didn't ask to be brought to America. I didn't ask to play piano. I didn't ask to have the pressures of, you know, immigrant sacrifice. And so do I live up to those? Do I rebel against that? And just trying to figure out what my own voice is within that dichotomy, those two extremes. Well, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit here, Lulu, and ask you to explain what Expats is about. It's about the intersection of a group of people, specifically three American women, and many women around them, locals, as well as um, domestic workers from the Philippines, um, but primarily focuses on three American women um, when a tragedy hits and all of their lives are affected. It shows the ripple effects on all of their lives and on all of their families, and it dives into their psyches, their choices, their mistakes, their flaws. It's ultimately a show, I think, about compassion. It's The Treatment. I'm Elvis Mitchell. My guest is Lulu Wong. Her new project as writer, director, creator is adapting the book The Expatriates into the series Expats for Amazon. You can also hear the show at KCRW.com. I think one of the things I really 
like so much about what you do is there's this constancy of people who are outsiders peering in. What can I say? I'm an I'm always an outsider peering in. <laughs> For better or worse, I'm an outsider in, in every circle, and I'm always arguing the point that a view of that is the minority point of view. You know, like I think that I was raised that way. My mother studied philosophy and raised me to constantly think and read philosophy. So. I enjoy debates and I enjoy smart debates with really nuanced thinkers. And so I often find myself in situations where I'm um, the odd person out, not just because of, you know, my identity and where I'm from and all that, but just even in, in my just point of view and my thinking, because I, I come from so many different backgrounds and different groups of people and their points of views are all different from each other. And so I like to bring my parents' point of view when I'm talking to uh, my friends. I have friends who um, are registered communists in America and I'm like, you should talk to my parents who come from a communist country. <laughs> you know, I'm, I like drawing links and connections and sometimes um, that's masochistic <laughs> because it's hard. <laughs> it's, it's hard to be um, having these differences of opinions and there's um, there's a real, I guess, like danger or fire to it. But I think it's really important that we all talk to each other. There's almost a desperate need uh, and, and there are things that these characters grab hold of that make all the sense in the world. And, and so much of these things, and the thing that connects the three stories without giving too much away is motherhood. Yeah. I was in the writer's room with, you know, several women and, all of us had different relationships to motherhood. And so I wanted to represent all of these different points of views. We change Hillary's story the most because um, in the book, she wants to become a mother and ends up adopting. And instead, we decided to explore a woman who was choosing not to have kids and really didn't want to have kids. And the thing that she's grappling with is actually how to navigate that when all of society and her family uh, all want something else. Like what are my choices and what are, what are society's choices and what are those expectations, you know, back to expectations, right? Like how sometimes you, it's hard to decipher those things. Like what's really me and what's really like an external voice. If you are looking for a sense of belonging and trying to tell yourself where you are isn't home, but you've been there for a while, mm -hmm. dislocation becomes really a part of your everyday existence, doesn't it? Yeah. It, and I don't think that there's an easy answer. So much of that is internal and in how you see yourself there. I mean, I've talked about this before where my mother really wanted me to assimilate. That was more important to her, not just as a survival mechanism, but she wanted me to feel at home in America, because I think that is her greatest pain, that she lives in a place where she truly doesn't feel at home. It, it, she has no connection to culture. She, When she listens to the music on the radio, um, it's not the music that she grew up with. Language, I mean, foods, like these are all things that make us feel like we belong and give us a sense of identity and home. And she doesn't have that anywhere because she goes back to China and she also doesn't feel like she fully belongs there. And so she pushed me 
to assimilate and to call the United States home. And, you know, of course, that is so much of my work and so much of my life journey <laughs> of going, well, am I American? Am I really? Am I, do I feel that way? And it's um, something Barry and I talk about a lot. Like, do you really claim this identity should we claim it or should we reject it and you know it differs day to day for all this sort of intellectual debate about that there's still this need for home we see it in the face literally of a mercy she's eating that soup um that her mother brings her it's like she's putting her feet on the ground in that scene and it's not just because of where her situation has taken her but that is real comfort that she's consuming home in some way. Oh, yeah, that's so beautiful. It's one of my favorite scenes. And I think it's the simplicity of that, you know, at the end of the day, no matter where you go in the world, no matter what you do in life, you know, that bowl of broth that just, you know, like the way my mother makes chicken broth is chicken, scallion, and ginger, and a bit of salt. And that's it. And if you add anything else, it doesn't taste like that anymore. If you miss one ingredient, it doesn't taste like that anymore. And that there's a profoundness to that. We're out of time, so I will thank Lulu Wong for coming by to talk about her new project, Expats for Amazon. Thanks so much for doing this. Always great talking to you. You as well. Thank you for having me. Directing an Oscar-winning actor and adapting a complicated novel. Writer-director Lulu Wang was up to the challenge of bringing the series Expats to Amazon Prime Video. I'm Elvis Mitchell. It's The Treatment. It's The Treatment. I'm Elvis Mitchell. And a treat so big, it took two people to take it on. Here's Brian Koppelman and David Levine, creators of Showtime's Billions. This is Brian Koppelman. And this is David Levine. This is The Treat. Somewhere beyond the sea, somewhere we... So 1990, we're out in Los Angeles. I was living there. Brian was sort of splitting his time between Los Angeles and New York. And it happened to be um, Yom Kippur. And I believe we fasted, even yeah, though maybe the last the religion. That might be the last time I fasted. Yeah. And I was 23 and Dave was 22. And we went to the theater to see Goodfellas for the first time and sat through the movie Starving. The smell of popcorn wafting around us. That's a good story. It's funny. You're a funny guy. <laughs> you mean the way I talk? What? It's just, you know, you, it's, you're just funny. It's, you 
funny, you know, the way you tell the story and everything. Funny how? I mean, what's funny about it? Tommy, no, you got it all wrong. He's... Oh, oh, Anthony. He's a big boy. He knows what he said. What'd you say? You're right. Funny how? What was and experiencing, like, the sort of... The, the ribald moments and laughs and boisterousness, but then sinking into this deep sense of gloom as the characters' ends and futures rolled out in front of them. What do you mean funny? Funny how? How am I funny? I mean, a couple of young, very hungry guys in Los Angeles, you know, um, watching a movie about a kind of alien, you know, partially about a kind of alienation within society. And going to it hoping that we were going to see a wise guy movie. And I remember walking around California when nobody walks and trying to understand why the movie made us feel so bad. Hey, Henry, Henry, hurry up, please. My mother's going to make some fried peppers and sausage for us. Oh, hey, Henry, Henry, his arm. Very funny, guys. Here's a leg. It's a wing. <laughs> we like were so confused and disoriented by by the power of it. We were like, was that was that not even a good movie? Like, why do we feel so bad? And then we were like, oh, it was a really incredible movie. Yeah, that warped our entire state of mind. Because you grow up on The Godfather and you think you're going to see a movie that has this myth. That movie strips all the myths away. And yes, it's replaced it. People watch it 10 times and they find moments in it funny. There are funny moments in it. But that's a movie about so much ugliness, about the worst actions we might take out of self-interest, about the lies that we tell to ourselves as people, about thinking we're good, about groupthink, right? About behavioral economics before anyone ever talked about behavioral economics. They want Henry. They don't want me. But Henry's going to be in a witness protection program. They're not going to be able to get to him. The only way they can get to him is by getting to you, getting to your kids. If he goes into the program, forget about it. You're in a great deal of danger. I think you I don't know that. anything. Come on, you don't know anything. Don't give me. We didn't know any of that, Karen. But all we knew walking around by the end of the night of walking was that might be the best piece of art we've seen as adults to understand, to apprehend. And I, I can say it sent the two of us back into movies, like back into watching movies differently. Do I make you laugh? Martin Scorsese's Goodfellas did more than that for the creators of Billions, Brian Koppelman and David Levine. They gave us the treat. Past treats, including Michelle and Robert King and several inspirational films, are at the archive, kcow.com slash the treat. Movies, books, music, and more that paved the way for artists constructing every type of creation. It's the treat. This show is produced and edited by Rebecca Mooney and mixed by Katie Gilcrest. Help this week from Laura Kondarajan and Phil Richards. To better days, even for the Detroit Lions, everyone. I'm Elvis Mitchell. It's the treatment. Man.